All right. So we, um, we're going to be in a passage of Scripture that uh, at least part of which many of you will, well, both, most of it you'll probably find pretty familiar, but there'll be one part in particular you really know. But before we get to the Scripture, our passage for today, I want to ask a question. It's kind of a word association question. I got two of these. Uh, does anybody know, like, does anybody know what the word venti means? Venti. Wait, wait, wait. Don't say it. You don't have to say it out loud. Venti. Does anything, think about what comes to your mind. Does anybody, let me just see. How many folks in here do know what, what it refers to? Venti? No? I'm, right, let's try grande or tall. Anybody know what these words are referring to? Did that? Nobody orders a venti. It's coffee. It's Starbucks. Now, I didn't mean, I didn't want anybody to feel excluded, but it's a word, it's one of these words where, um, you know, depending on how quickly, well, one of the three came to mind, Starbucks came to mind, it probably reveals a little bit how often you go there, <laughs> or at least how often you've been there. Um, let's do another one that I think everybody will be excluded on this one. Does anybody know where the words pilota, uh, shistera, uh, chula, or sesta come from? Are there any high alive fans in the room? It's a sport with a basket on your hand and you throw, it's, it's this ball. It's a, it's a, no, I didn't think so. so. That was one where everybody was going to be excluded. Just didn't want anybody to feel left out on that. Um, I'm going to do another one, another word association. I'm going to say John. And then what's the first thing that, I think a lot of people, the first thing that will come to mind would be 316 or something along the lines of it. Uh, it's something everybody's familiar with. John 316, maybe not, maybe, but anyway, that didn't work out quite as well as I thought it might. But so have, has anybody ever heard of the word Christianese? So without realizing it, there's a lot of words that we use in the church, especially the longer that you've been around the church. There's a lot of words that we use that we don't really think about the meaning of them. But if you're around people who aren't a part of the church or who have never been a part of the church or who don't know the Bible very well, those words are and phrases are completely foreign to them. But you can use them without thinking about whether or not the other people that you're talking to really understand what they mean. Um, so today's passage uh, is one of the, the most famous verses, has one of, contains one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16. Um, you know, and it, I think John 3.16 is, is sometimes one of those Christianese things that we just kind of rattle off without thinking about anymore what it actually means or thinking about whether or not others actually can, you know, kind of understand what it means. And uh, so it's my hope that our time in God's Word today might help us to see this passage and the context that we find it in, the passage, the, the, this verse and the passage that we find it within, that we might be able to see it anew, see it in a different way today. Um, now, John 3.16 is actually falls within the passage of Scripture where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Uh, you know, I, growing up, I never really associated John 3.16 with Nicodemus. But the reason that Jesus says that, says or quotes John 3.16 is because of this conversation, this interaction that he's having with Nicodemus. And so we're actually going to begin a couple of verses before chapter 3 begins. So we'll be in chapter 3. But we're going to start actually in verse 20, uh, 23 of chapter 2, and we're going to read all the way to 21, verse 21 of chapter 3. And so we'll read the Word of God together this morning. This is the 
uh, forget the version this is, but anyway, it might be a little bit different than the one you have with you or the one you have on your phone, but there might be reasons for that, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in his name because, because they saw the miraculous signs that he was doing. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. Now a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must, be born, you must all be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound it makes, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus replied, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? I tell you the solemn truth. We speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. If I have told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one and the only, and the only Son of God. Now this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light, so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so John sets the scene here by letting us know that many people had come to believe in Christ because they saw miraculous signs that he was doing. But Jesus does not find their belief sufficient. He does not entrust himself to them. It's the belief, the word that John uses to say that they believe in him is the same word in terms of what Jesus, Jesus does not believe in them. It's the same word. 
We translate, it's translated different, but it's the same word in Greek. So they believe in Jesus because of his signs, and because their belief is based on the signs, Jesus does not believe in them, or he does not entrust himself to them. You see, Jesus knows what is in man, is what John tells us. But uh, he, So what he does is he focuses in on a particular man, a particular person. Um, he does so by saying, now a certain man. And so we focus in on Nicodemus, but this was not just any person. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher in Israel, a well-respected religious leader. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a politician. He was a big shot, is probably the simplest way to say it. Wealthy, influential. And he would have been looked at by the people, or looked to by the people, as one who should have had all the answers. Uh, and he had become accustomed to being certain about things. Does that make sense? He knew the answers. He was the teacher. Jesus doesn't say, you are a teacher of Israel. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. And Nicodemus comes to him, and he says, we know. You hear that certainty in Nicodemus' voice. We know that you are a teacher from God because of the miraculous signs. So here we have this example of one of these people who believe in Jesus, but maybe not for the right reasons. <clears throat> we know that you are a teacher from God because of the miraculous signs. No one could do them if God was not with him. You know, usually when we think about Nicodemus' story, if you're familiar with it, we think Nicodemus comes with questions. But that's, Nicodemus does not come with questions. He comes with certainty to Jesus, with knowledge. We know. But Jesus responds to his certainty and his enthusiasm by throwing him into confusion. Jesus says, unless a person is born, and then the Greek is anathon, which I hate doing this Greek stuff, but it's really important, um, because that word is a, it's, it has multiple meanings. So G, the way it's translated from Jesus' mouth in the English is born from above, but from above and again come from this same word. So there are three options for understanding this word. It can be again, just simply born again, the way Nicodemus takes it literally. It can be from above or anew. Now he could have chose either of the other two options, but he chooses the literal one. He says born again. And just so that John, John makes it clear to us what he means, how literally he takes it, he says, can a man enter his mother's womb and come out again? Like, no, no. Um, and so Jesus is almost throwing riddles at Nicodemus. He's throwing his certainty, or he's throwing him into confusion. And so now Nicodemus comes with the questions, or he has them. They come out of Nicodemus. Um, you know, so just an example of this, this multiple meaning. If you had two people standing next to each other in the woods, and one of them yells, duck, and the other one ducks down, as, whereas the other one says, look, a duck, you know, you can see this is kind of what Jesus is doing with this anathon. <clears throat> and Nicodemus chooses the literal meaning. So Jesus comes back and clarifies, well, if you can call it that, uh, Jesus says, no, unless a person is born from above, that's what he's getting at. It's about being able to see anew. It's about removing the residue of our confidence and our assumptions about who God is and how God works. And so 
what is it this morning that we base our faith in Jesus on? What is it that we look to base our belief in God on? You know, Nicodemus and the others, they're not wrong about Jesus. He's a teacher from God. And you can know that because he's doing the miraculous signs. But there's something about their understanding and their expectations of what that means, of who Jesus is and what it means to be, for Jesus to be sent by God. There's something about that that is misguided, that's misdirected. You know, their faith is misplaced. Their faith is in the signs and the wonders rather than in the one who is, um, who is doing, who is pointing to, and who is enacting the signs and the wonders. You know, how often do we, like Nicodemus, come to Jesus to have our understanding, our knowledge of God affirmed and settled rather than to, to have our assumptions of God and our perceived knowledge of God turned upside down by his holy newness. I think that's fairly clear that that's what happens to Nicodemus here. You know, Jesus points out to Nicodemus that his belief is rooted in the flesh, in earthly expectations and assumptions rather than on the things of God. You know, the signs that Nicodemus refers to, they're real. The healings, the feedings, all of the things that Nicodemus up to that point had heard about or had seen, they're real. And they are certainly part of the arrival of God's kingdom. But these signs, the signs and the wonders that Jesus does that reveal the true nature and the true reality of the kingdom of God that he brings, they go by unnoticed. It's the signs and the wonders like washing of feet, of putting a child on his lap, of empowering women and other people who had been outcast, of crossing boundaries into Gentile territory, or speaking to Samaritans, or to people that he had no as tax collectors, to speaking to people he had no business speaking to, loving his enemies. These are the signs and the wonders that get overlooked by the people whom Jesus are following. In fact, the people who believe in Jesus because of these signs and wonders that they had seen. In fact, the expectations that they had of Jesus that lead them to believe because of those signs and wonders that they had seen are actually quite counter to the kingdom that Jesus brings. It's many of those people who when Jesus enters in on a donkey and begin, falls under the arrest and then the torture, who will betray him, even his closest disciples. But the ultimate sign and wonder of the reality and the nature of God's kingdom that Jesus brings into focus here in the conversation with Nicodemus is his crucifixion. That's where the ultimate nature and reality of this kingdom of God is revealed. You know, and as I meditated and, and chewed on this passage this week, I began to wonder if our certainty about how God operates, I was beginning to wonder if that should not be brought under the light of Christ. You know, and then it hit me. You know, I can recite John 3.16 by heart, King James. Um, but, and I might be able to like stutter my way through 17, but in terms of, if we even go back to 14 or 15, I don't know 14 or 15 or 18 through 21 by heart. I never learned it. 
I only ever learned 316. And so maybe our perceived certainty of the meaning of this verse, maybe it, could be, it should be brought into question before God in a pursuit of greater faithfulness on our part. And so you'll not be surprised if you've heard me preach a few times that I, my attention was captured by the Old Testament reference in this passage. So Jesus refers to, he's referring to his crucifixion, but what he does is he refers to the serpent on the pole that Moses lifts up. And so this passage, if you want to go back and find the story, it's in Numbers chapter 21. And I'll just give you a summary. So Israel has been wandering in the desert, and you begin to see this pattern as you read about their wanderings. You know, they go for a while, and then they start to grumble and complain. About, usually it's about food. Uh, and they usually, there's, it's actually quite repetitive. They say, you brought us out of Egypt to, to die here in the wilderness. Were there not enough graves in Egypt for us there? Did we have to come here to die? And so usually this pattern goes, they start grumbling, they lose focus, they lose sight of who it is that's directing them and providing for them, and they begin to complain. They say, this food is rubbish. You know, there's not enough water. And so God, and then God does something to refocus them. He sends a test, and then they repent. And so in this particular instance, God's sick of their complaining, and so he sends fiery serpents. He sends poisonous snakes. Um, I just came, I was in Dublin on Friday night visiting a friend that's over there. And as I was walking through the airport, Skoda, the car, the, the car dealer, the car manufacturer, they had these advertisements in the airport where they had St. Patrick hold, with the snakes on his, on his stick. And it was, there's a car that drove all the snakes out of Ireland. I, I, I didn't understand the advert or what the, the effectiveness of it would be. I know St. Patrick's story, but... I, don't, I didn't quite see how it worked in the advert, but it made me think, it was just funny that we were doing this passage. And, but so Moses, God, the people repent. They say, we're sorry, we shouldn't complain. And God says, okay, Moses, make a serpent, like a brazen serpent. So make, basically make an idol is what God tells Moses to do. Put it on a pole and lift it up. And if someone is bitten by a snake, then all they have to do is look up at the snake that's on the pole and they'll be saved. And so that's what they do, and the people are saved. But the story of the pole, the snake on the pole, doesn't end there. Somewhere along the way, it gets stuck in a closet in, in the temple, in Solomon's temple. And somewhere along the way, someone finds it. So about a thousand years go by, and they find it, and they begin to worship the snake on the pole. Um, they begin to worship it. It says they burned incense to it, is the way it says. And so now you have... King Hezekiah, who comes along in, in 2 Kings chapter 18, and I don't know how long the Israelites have been worshiping this, this snake on a pole, but King Hezekiah comes along, and he takes the throne, and he's one of the very few kings in, the past, in Kings and 2 Kings who gets a, a positive appraisal. He did what was right in the sight of God, and what he did was he tore down all the places of idol worship, and then it, as a tagline, and he broke the serpent. He broke the brazen serpent, the bronze serpent. So he demolished it. And so this is the story of the serpent. So where am I going with this? What's, what's going on? Why does Jesus refer to this here? You know, Jesus would have known the fate of this serpent that Moses made. He didn't refer to its being smashed, but he would have been well aware of that, that, that history. Uh, and he, he would have known that it would have been used in idol worship by Israel. 
as a, as a false god. And so why does he reference it here nonetheless? And what does it have to do with John 3.16? You know, see, the issue with the serpent was that the belief shifted away from the God to whom that serpent on a pole pointed to the serpent statue itself. Do you see that? The issue is that the focus shifted away from the God to whom this sign pointed to the sign itself. People began to put their hope and their faith in the sign rather than in the God to whom the sign pointed. You know, it was not the statue of the snake that saved the people. It was, the, it was God who saved the people. You know, and John 3.16 has sometimes been called the gospel in a nutshell, a, a concise summary of the gospel, and I think that's true. But our emphasis in reading and using that verse, I would argue, has been misplaced, much like the Israelites' use of the statue. You know, I believe that we have come to put too much emphasis uh, in that verse on our belief rather than on the love of God that the verse speaks about. Our, um, our overemphasis on our belief and the role that it plays in our salvation has warped our understanding of the gospel. You know, we've fallen under the illusion that it is our belief that saves us and not the God who saves us, the God in whom we put our faith. And because of that, like Nicodemus, we have come to value certainty when it comes to our faith. Because that certainty, if it is our belief that we believe, yeah, our belief that we believe it saves us, then certainty is all the better. Because it provides us even more of a measure of peace and assurance about it. But <laughs> the gospel does not require our certainty. It requires faith, thank God. You know, if it required our belief, if our belief is what saved us alone, then that would not be good news at all because it's still relying on us. And our focus in this passage should fall first on the love of God as it's described by Jesus. Our focus should be on what God has accomplished and the kingdom that is brought by Jesus. And when this is our focus, certainty is not necessary. Belief shifts from being a burden to being a gift, a gift of participation in the life of God, a freedom a freedom from needing to impress God or others. It's a freedom from trying to earn our ticket. It becomes a freedom. Our belief becomes a trust that what God has done is sufficient and that in our participation with God in our salvation, we might find rest and not anxiety. So Nicodemus comes with certainty and, and absolutely no doubt on his part, it seems, but he leaves there with questions bouncing around inside of his head. This encounter with Jesus has created questions for him rather than just providing answers. Now Nicodemus will appear twice more in this gospel. He'll appear one time in the middle of the gospel in the midst of the Sanhedrin and he steps up in Jesus' defense. It's a rather weak defense, but it's a defense nonetheless. So Nicodemus is still... He's still on the fringe of this Jesus thing. He's encountered Jesus. He's been changed by Jesus. But in regards to his participation in following Jesus, 
It's still unclear where he really stands. But he'll appear one more time. So after the disciples have abandoned Jesus, after Peter has denied Jesus three times, Nicodemus appears to help with his burial. He spends a vast amount of money on burial spices. He comes out into the light, whereas here in this encounter, it's in the darkness. He comes into the light of day, and he buries Jesus' body, the Messiah's body, the one whom they had waited for. The signs and the wonders have passed at this point. The true sign, the sign that reveals the true nature of the kingdom of God has happened and most people have abandoned him. But Nicodemus is still here. And we're not, the, the text does not tell us where Nicodemus still, where, where he stands in regards to certainty or belief, but he shows up. He helps to bury Jesus. And we're never told what came of his faith, whether or not he finally became a true follower of Jesus. And so we're left with this question, did he believe in the end? Um, now, in terms of his internal dialogue or what he thought, I don't know. But when he shows up and he helps to bury Jesus, I can only say that it looks good for him in, in that regard. But ultimately, we don't know. But he was present. He kept showing up. He had met Jesus, and he could not be the same after that. Now, whether he fully believed or not, whether he decided to follow Jesus, he could not be the same. This is a theme in John's Gospel. People encounter Jesus, and they're either wholesale in or they're out. But Nicodemus kind of goes, he's, it's complicated. And sometimes when we search for certainty, and when we put our emphasis on our belief, uh, and don't get me wrong, belief is important. But when we put all of our emphasis on it, um, we try to simplify this whole thing instead of realizing that people are complicated and that life is complicated and that Jesus does not just, like this candle represents, Jesus is not simply just here in our midst, but Jesus is out there as well with people. And so I don't know where you stand today with Jesus. Maybe you find yourself lurking around the fringes. Maybe you're burdened with anxiety or with uncertainty. Um, maybe you're still unsure or you have lots of questions. But perhaps it's time that we take a step closer to Jesus. Maybe certainty has best described your posture of faith, but perhaps you need to allow yourself to be questioned by Jesus. Perhaps you need to allow Jesus to shake that certainty up so that you might receive the gift of faith. Maybe you have come to rely too much on your belief and you are not trusting in the love of God, that's of, of the God who sent his son. Maybe you have no idea who this Jesus is, but you want to know more. So I want us to take some time this morning to pray about that. We're going to sing another song, maybe one more if, if Joanne's nice. We can do one of the ones we did before if we need to. Um, but I want us to take some time this morning to pray about that. I want us to to just take some time to, to think about where we stand with God, um, the ways that we have tried to rely on ourselves more than we have on God's love, uh, and to pray about ways that God is beckoning us to continue to participate in the salvation that he wants to bring for us. And I'll say this, God loves you, whether you like it or not. 
And there's nothing you can do about it. And so what we actually find is that we, when we believe, when we embrace Jesus, what we actually find that Jesus has been embracing us or has been reaching out to embrace us all along. And so I'll invite us to take some, a posture of prayers as we sing some more. You can stand, you can sit, but, but take some time to ask those questions. Where am I with Jesus? Where is Jesus with me? But that question will be, will have a consistent answer there all along. Okay? Let's pray. God of Spirit, God of Christ, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, the ways that you are at work. Lord, reveal to us the nature and the reality of your kingdom. Lord, it's not one where we have to be sure, Lord, where we have to be certain, where we have to have it all together to be a part of, Lord, but one where we're welcome to come and to explore with you what life with you looks like. God, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would remind us of our of our new birth. Lord, that you would shake the scales from our eyes, Lord, and, and soften our hearts so that we might follow you wherever you may lead us. In Jesus' name.